blackout like right now. It was driving me crazy. My, my dark thing, you know, that seasonal affective, that sad thing, I got that. It's killing me. So there's certain things like when I, when I need a pick-me-up, that I, I, it, there are my go-to things on the internet. When I just need to smile, right? It's like, I know it'll make me smile. And I was thinking about sharing it with you this morning. Would you like a little pick-me-up this morning? You got to say it like you mean it. All right. Get ready to smile because nothing can change the mood on a gloomy fall day like dancing babies. something about music, right? Even kids can identify it. It's powerful. And when we were kids and babies and youngsters, man, you know, when you're young, somebody put on the right song, you just start to move. Something happened. But then, if you're like me, you got a little bit older. I don't know what age that was. Somewhere, though, I'm guessing around middle school, something else then happened. Because the music is still playing when you're 12, 13. In fact, now we bring in professional DJs, right, to really take it to the next level, to get, to get the party jumping, right? Uh, but inevitably, you look around the room. Have you been to a middle school dance? You look around the room, and the scene often looks like something like this. What happened? What happened to this, you know? I guess, in my mind, two things. The first is, at some point, someone said something that made you think that you can't dance. I've been told this, and I can't. And there was a little bit of a wound that was put on me, right? When somebody told me you can't dance, I thought I, I could dance. And then maybe, now that was a wound inflicted by somebody else. It caused me to, to wallflower up. But, but maybe even more importantly, maybe even more painful, and by the way, this is a self-inflicted wound now, 
is you started worrying about what other people thought about how you danced. You started going, what if they think I look silly? Now, when those two things happen, when, when somebody either says something to you or you start to worry so much about what they think, when those two things happen, then, then the life you were, you were created to live with, with passion and abandon, like you saw with that little fat baby, the only life that you're ever going to get, by the way, when those things happen, when, those, when, when you start to worry so much about what others might think or what they've said about what your passions are, when those things happen, you start to get paralyzed and you become not just wallflowers in the middle school dance, but as life goes on, you become like a passive onlooker and life is just rocketing by you. And this is what we're talking about in this four-week series called Wonder Life. This is why it's so important for me if I, if I can get you into groups because I, I want you to walk through these things, these principles, because this all has to do with what sin has done to us and robbed us of and how we can rediscover how God created us. And so I'm doing this four-part sermon series and I'm going to go with a four-part small group series. Steve will be out there in the foyer at the Welcome Center to get you into a small group or you could join Joan and I's small group starting on Friday. In this series, we're using Psalm 139. If you have a Bible, the, Psalm, the book of Psalms is kind of a big book. It's in the middle of your Bible. And if you don't know, the Psalms are essentially, they're like the journal of King David. He was a, a, a big figure in the scriptures. Many of you know King David, right? He was the little boy who shot the giant Goliath dead with a rock and a sling. Maybe you grew up like in a Christian home. You might have had a King David-like outfit, you know. You thought you were kind of cool with your, your little slingshot. But, uh, but David wasn't just... A, a cool little boy. He grew up to be one of Israel's great kings, and that's a great story too. But as I explained to you last week, David was also a lot like you and me. He's a complex guy. He's not perfect or simple. He loves God. He loves God, but he loved another man's wife. His heart was for God, but it also led him to kill another man's wife. Complex guy. And as David wrestles with his junk, his sin and his failure, because that's, David actually says, it's always with me, my, my, what I've done, and his triumphs and his victories, he writes a journal that many of us have come to know as the book of Psalms. And most of these Psalms are written by David, and he's trying to make sense of who he is. Like, God, who am I? Am I the person that is this wonderful warrior for you? Or am I a family destroyer, an adulterer, and a murderer? Who am I? And so he writes out his thoughts in the Psalms. In Psalm 139, what we're studying over these few weeks is we're trying to glean some, some wisdom for ourselves as complex people by what David wrote in his journal, in a sense. How do we make sense of who we are and, and, and what's going on in a world that seems so random and so out of control or, or sometimes even cruel? Now, at the heart of the material we're looking at in the journal that you can get, some of you emailed me last week and you said, we're starting, I'm starting a group of my friends on, on, the, on this journal. How do I get the journal? Steve can help you get the journal. It'll be out there. But at the heart of the Wonder Life study, there's, and Wonder Life comes from, from this verse that you'll see in a minute, um, are two of life's most essential questions. Everybody that's ever lived has asked these two things. Number one, who am I? And number two, why am I here? Who am I? 
I mean, am I the warrior, am I, am I the warrior for God or am I the adulterer and, and the murderer? I mean, who am I? Am I Pastor John? You know, he looks really good sometimes on Sunday and godly. And, or am I Saturday Night John? Who am I? Saturday Night John's not that bad, lest you worry, so... And then there is, so there's a question of identity here. And then, then the second is, well, what am I doing here? There's a second question, which is a question of purpose. Now, last week, I hope some of you that are in these small groups will take some notes because you should be writing this stuff down and getting into your small groups and talking about how some of these things are striking you. And this is how we learn. Last week, we looked at the first trail. We're going to look at our trail marker. We look, we're going to look at four trail markers, pulling things out of David's thoughts in Psalm 139. And so last week we looked at the first trail marker on trying to answer those two profound questions. And here was the first trail marker. Trail marker number one is this. You have to come to believe that your story matters. David, as he was writing and wrestling with God in Psalm 139, verse 14, he says, Lord, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully, here's where we're getting wonder life, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Trail marker one, and I can't spend a lot of time on it, but trail marker one is that you, church, you have to understand this. You have to believe this at deep levels. I know you might go, I've heard that before, but I'm telling you, you gotta gotta embrace it. You're a -a one-of-a-kind original. Ain't nobody else like you. You are not a mass-produced, you're not like a Ford Escape, right, that somebody's banging out on the production line. You are a -a one-of-a-kind original. You are not a blob of meaningless random tissue. You, and please hear me, please hear God when he's saying this, you were formed by God with intent and purpose, with meaning, and your story, what has happened to you, the good parts, the parts where you'd like to say, I'd like you to read this, and the bad parts, the parts you'd like to rip out of your book and hide so nobody can see, both of those parts, your story, even the messy parts, they matter. They matter a lot, and when you embrace that reality, you can begin to find who you are, what's my story, and then what is my purpose. So we spent some time looking at that last week and and what the biggest obstacle that that could be there, which is allowing other people to define your story for you. Check that out online. But here's week two. Week two, we're going to look at trail marker number two, and David understood this. Week two, in order to live the life that God created you as a unique human being to be, a life of purpose and intent, you need to come to grips with this reality. Trail marker number two, I am unashamed, I am going to live going forward unashamed about what I love and care about. One of the biggest obstacles that you and I can have in living the so-called wonder life, the life we were created to live, is the amount of shame and guilt that so many of us can feel about what we like and what we love and what we care about. Because the problem is, for many of us, we've let the critics shape us instead of letting, we've let the critics, we've let the critics shape us instead of letting God mold us. And when we do that, when we allow others to be in the place of God shaping us, what do they shape us into? They shape us into their image and not his. This is a big big spiritual deal. There's a great study I read of this week uh, that was done by NASA in the 60s. A guy named George Land was hired. It might have had something to do with when Kennedy was trying to to get us to the moon and back, right? You might remember this in the late 60s. NASA hired a guy named George Land to develop an assessment tool to identify the most creative scientists and engineers that were employed at NASA. 
So we developed an assessment tool that they would give to everybody in the organization because they were going to need the best and the brightest, the most creative, out-of-the-box thinkers to help them achieve this goal that had been set forth. And it was so wildly successful in helping NASA that they decided to take this assessment tool outside of the scope of NASA and to give it to children. Would it be possible to identify at an early age who the creative children were so we could send them in a certain direction? Seemed to make a lot of sense. And so they started out, um, they, they took a group of, in 1968, they took a group of 1,600 kids and they gave them the assessment at the age of five years old. And they decided that what they would do is they would track them so they would measure them at five years old, at 10 years old, and at 15 years old to see their creativity. And so when they tested this group with this assessment tool that had worked at NASA, when they tested the five-year-olds, 98% of all the children tested, tested as creative. Almost every single five-year-old in the study of 1,600 of them was a creative kid. So five years go by, and now they're 10 years old, same children. All of them, which just about were creative. At the age of 10, they test them again. Only 30% of the kids tested as creative. And so another five years go by and they test them again at the age of 15. And only 12% of the children now test as creative. And these results were so striking to, to the sociologists at the time that they decided they needed to expand the test again because they... This went against everything that they actually thought was true. And so they expanded the test to 280,000 adults. And after giving the assessment to 280,000 adults, only 2% of the population tested as creative. And what they learned was creativity. See, they thought creativity was learned. It was a skill you could pick up. You could send them to college and make your kid creative. What they learned was creativity wasn't something that you learned. Creativity got unlearned. Because, see, you were made in the image of God, the creator God, formed to be like your Father in heaven. Creative, but something happened to us along the way. It's just like babies and dancing. Our feet once moved and now we hang on the wall. Now, research hasn't been able to determine exactly what's happened here, but here's my best guess based on, on at least the spiritual end of this, and you'll see this biblically. Something happened, I don't know if it was a parent or a teacher or an authority figure or a pastor or a bully or a critic, but somebody told these kids somewhere, you're not good at that, you're not creative. Somebody told these babies somewhere along the line, you don't look very good when you dance. Or maybe these kids began to worry about not fitting in. Look, it seems like I'm pretty creative, but everybody wants to play football. So what happened? Most of these kids put down their crown, they hung up their guitar, or they unlaced their dancing shoes and they took their place on the wall. Now, if, you, if you're a Springsteen fan like me, you know that his autobiography came out this week. Now, I want to show you that I'm a complex individual before you are worried about my soul. I'm currently 400 pages into a 500-page biography on Bonhoeffer. Um, Bonhoeffer was a German uh, theologian and pastor that wound up being a spy trying to undermine Hitler's regime, was caught by Hitler, was um, hung 
uh, in a concentration camp just a couple of weeks before the Third Reich fell. And uh, the stories of Bonhoeffer are he was so close to Christ that as they led him to the gallows, his executioners said, we never saw a man like this. We never seen anybody go to their death like this man did. And so I'm about to finish up that Bonhoeffer biography, and then I'll move on to Bruce. Um, I'm like David, I'm complex. There are layers of onions here that you, you could peel through. But there's an interesting quote, and it's, I haven't read the book yet, but, but I heard this years ago, and it has stuck with me, something he said. He was inducted into his high school hall of fame in Freehold. And uh, he, he couldn't go. He was out somewhere. So he sent his mom, Adele, this cute little old woman. I actually met his mother one time, which is a weird story I'll tell you another day. But uh, his mother went, and she's reading a letter from Bruce thanking the high school um, faculty for what they did. And here's the quote that was in the letter. And, and I can't shake this in my head. Parents, teachers, listen to this. Quote, my advice to teachers today is to keep your eyes on the ones who don't fit in. Those are the ones that can think out of the box. You never know where they'll be going. And so in this material, this Wonder Life material that we're studying, because it's important we study this. It's not, Jesus, following Jesus is not just something done with your mind. It's done with your hearts. One of the questions that they ask in the material is, what chopped down your dreams? Like, if you were created to be this individual that had individualistic passions and talents and gifts, like, why all of a sudden did you give them up? I mean, was it, was it f fear? Or was it the critics? Was it failure? Was it finances? I, I'm really looking forward to hearing back from some of you guys as you work through it. But here's things, one thing I know from the scriptures. It wasn't, our, our world is not supposed to look like this, and this is a result of sin and brokenness. Here's what David said in Psalm 139, as he wrestled with it himself. He said this in, in, in verse 15. He said, Lord, you know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. And David, he's wrestling with God, and, and he begins to understand that not only does his story matter, what's happened to him, that he is both a warrior and a murderer, not only that every element of his story matters, but he begins to understand that God has made him in an exact way, as an individual with different gifts and talents and passions than other people, which is exactly the same way he made you. God did not make us all the same way. He is not pounding out Ford Escapes. I like a Ford Escape, but he's not, that's not what he's up to. He did not make us all interested in the same things. He did not give us all the same talents. And there's a reason that some of us like jazz and some of us like rock and roll. There's a, there's a reason that some of us can sing and some of us shouldn't. Um, there's a reason that some of us speak up front. Before you say it, I know right now you're going, yes, and some of you shouldn't, right? I get that. You don't have to yell it out. But there's a reason that some of us speak up front and others of us maybe need to use our influence quietly um, through relationships. There's a reason some of us like the Yankees and some of us like the Mets. I mean, that might just be as simple as some of us like playoff baseball and others like to dust off old trophies, but that's for another, another sermon. <laughs> now this, <laughs> if all of that other than that Yankee thing is true and biblical, <laughs> then here's the question that it, it brings out for you and me. If you were created unique with God-given passions and talents, why do so many of us spend all of our lives squashing what it is that we love and we're passionate about just so we can fit in? Now, that might seem like a new problem. Like, when I thought about it, I'm like, well, it's because of the American dream. The American dream says we should all look a certain way. But I, I started thinking about it more. 
as Christians, especially those of us that are trying to follow Jesus seriously, as a people who so proudly, you know, we wear our little WWJD bracelet and slap the bumper sticker on. Church, understand this. If you're, if you're trying to follow Jesus in the world we live in today, you're not supposed to look like everybody else. You should not look like everybody else. God created you, God created each of you with intent and purpose. You are unique, and he has a cause for you in this world. And when we spend our whole lives trying just to fit in so we, we can let, what do we do? We let others become our creators, and we lose ourselves along the way. Even those of us that say we love God, we can live out our lives in such a way that we wind up living to please others, living to look like them rather than living to please God and look like him. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, some of you from your faith backgrounds know him as St. Paul, 2,000 years ago. This is not an American problem. This is not a modern problem. This is a sin problem, okay? 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote this in Romans 12. We'll start with the NIV version that you're familiar with. Paul said, do not conform, Christians, don't look, don't conform to the pattern of the world. I've shown you this before, the pattern of the world. Those of you that have been around Mendham, you know we do this exercise every once in a while. There's a pattern of this world. When you get to be about 13, right, you go where? Where do you spend your days from 13 to 18? High school. Right after college, or right after high school, what do you do? Right after college, what do you get? Then you start looking for someone to spend time with, so you get, and then you have, and then you need to live somewhere, so what do you get? Then that house isn't big enough for you anymore, because now you make more money, so you get a, right, and then once you get that around 35, what's the next thing you look forward to? So you can do, that is the pattern of the world. And we fall into it all the time. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying this is a dangerous thing. Don't conform to this. It doesn't mean it's wrong or evil. Certainly there's good there and there's smart decisions there. But Paul says don't feel that you have to. In fact, I love the way um, the message translates it. It says this. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. How about that? 2,000 years ago. This becomes... I thought about this. This, when we conform to our culture like this, despite the fact that we were made as individuals with unique talents and passions and gifts and purpose, when we start to just conform to what somebody else wants of us, for your soul, it is like um, foot binding for your soul. Anybody know what foot binding is? The Chinese used to practice it. It was a custom of applying painfully tight binding to the feet of young girls so that their feet wouldn't grow. It became popular as a way of displaying your status. It was in that culture. Because what would happen is if a girl's foot looked small, it would tell the culture that she comes from a wealthy family because she doesn't need to work. Because that, they could keep her feet small. And then over time, over, over time, over a thousand years this went on in China. It began to be confused with beauty, as I showed you last week. And so when we do this, when we allow other people to determine for us what we should be doing and what God has made us to do, it is like foot binding for our souls. Paul says to you and I, what are you doing? Don't let your passion die. Whatever God has called you, whatever is like making you really angry, like there's this sense of it shouldn't be that way, God has given you a passion to fix it. Whatever, is, whatever excites you and you're passionate about it, you say, I really feel I want to do this, it's likely that God has given you that. You should go do it. 
Don't bind up your soul in order to live the life that others want you to live. Now, I, I, let me give you some examples of this. It's so prevalent in our culture, we don't think about it. There is a, there's a couple of gods when you live in Morris County, New Jersey, especially Mendham and Long Valley and Randolph, okay? What is the number one god for children age, say, 6 to 16 in our culture? What is the thing that they have to be in? Sports. Got to be in it. Got to be in sports. Okay. Well, what if my kid isn't good in sports? Like, nobody wants to talk about this, but most kids aren't. You know, breaking news, all of you all of you guys, I mean, I had my kids in, in all kinds of private coaching and all the rest, too. I mean, I breathe it in, too. Breaking news, very few of us are getting scholarships. I want to be the bearer of bad news, but sports is number one. Okay, but okay, so my kid's not athletic, but it's a good thing that I live in Mendham or Chester or Randolph because if they're not athletic, they can go to, to Mendham or, or West Mars. And at that school, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not athletic, you have the chance to be really what? Smart. So if you're, if you're not small, if you're, if you're not athletic, at least you can be smart, right? Okay, so, so you look at the culture and what the culture is teaching our kids and what we're showing our kids, and they're made as individuals with different talents, different passions, but, but well, you should be good at sports. You're not good at sports? Uh, you better be good at school. Okay, well, what happens? I mean, there's only one thing left in our current culture as I see it. There's only one thing we can funnel you into. If you're not good at sports and, and, and you're not all that bright, what can we funnel you into? The band. <laughs> Just kidding. Don't email. Love the band. But these are the choices, okay? These are the choices. Average kid going to high school, well, I'm not athletic, I'm not that smart, and I can't play the flute. What does that communicate to a kid? Well, you better figure out a way to be smart, athletic, or, or play the flute. Well, what if God didn't make you that way? I remember we went um, to a high school orientation one night, Joan and I, and we were sitting there, and uh, the, I'll never forget this. It, it haunted us. Joan knows what I'm talking about before I even start to say it. The, the guidance counselor was up there, and he was a very well-meaning person, and he said, oh, you don't understand. This school is so good. This is one of the best high schools in the country, and here's the deal. If you can get your kid, and he went through this thing, if you could get in, your, in, in this school, if you could get your kid into the um, honors program, that would be really good. And if you could get your kid in the IB program, that would be even better. And then if your kid is a reader, if your kid is in the IB program and your kid is, is a reader, then you really have something. That's exactly what he said. Well, my kid had a learning disability. So what do I have? And see, this isn't funny. This isn't funny. By the way, that kid went on to have a 3.5 GPA at college, but this isn't funny. God didn't produce mass produce us. We're not all supposed to be good at sports or school or the band. Parents, if I could tell you anything, free the souls of your children. Study the souls of your children. Teach them this over and over and over. They don't have to be like everybody else. It's okay to not like football. Let them pursue their passions. Become students of how God made them as individuals. And then parents, moms and dads, look at your own lives. What hopes and dreams and passions and interests 
What did you let die because somebody told you that you don't fit in with these? What, what, what talents and gifts and passions have you not nurtured because somebody told you you can't make any money doing that? Is it all about was it, was what God gave you that, that burns in you, that he created you to do, that he gave you passions and gifts for? Who told you you had to make money doing it? Where did that lie come from? You could make money at Burger King and pursue what God has given you to do. Is it possible to pursue your passion and calling and not get paid? See, the Bible understands this problem. Guys, this is not a practical problem. This is a spiritual problem. The Bible says there is a spiritual battle going on in the world for your souls. And when God gave you passions and interests and desires and talents to use for his purposes to build God's kingdom, and we lay them down just so we fit in, we don't lose, everybody loses. Everybody loses. Paul wrote another letter to a church in Galatia, and, and, and in, it wasn't written in chapters, but in Galatians, the way it's written, the way we've broken it up, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says this, 2,000 years ago, folks. He says, since this is the kind of life we've chosen, those of us that understand we're following Jesus, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we don't just hold it as an idea in our heads, or, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus, or a sentiment in our hearts. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that, no, that's a nice story John told but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. And that means, Paul says this 2,000 years ago, we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Can I get an amen? amen. You have far more interesting things to do with your life. You were given much more than just to try to look like somebody else. Each of us, Paul says 2,000 years ago, is an original your story matters. Your passions and interests and talents, they matter. God made you with a purpose and for a reason. I look at my own life. I, God called me to be in ministry when I was 21 years old. I, I came to know who Jesus was when I was 18. I, I just kept getting all these people. Like, everywhere I'd go, I'd hear this thing, you know, you should be in ministry, you should be in ministry. And I really felt like God wanted me in ministry. And I got all the forms to go to seminary, and I tried to fill them out, and I did fill them out. But in my head, I just kept hearing my, my dad. Now, he never said anything to me. This is my own crud I'm just sharing with you. But there was this thing in my head that said, I just kept hearing my dad say, you're really smart. Don't waste your life doing this. I never sent any of those forms in. Now, two things to think about there. Number one, what got lost because I wasn't obedient to God in my life and in other people's lives over the last 20 or 25 years? And number two, when God has a call on your life, he'll come get, he'll, you don't have to worry about missing it. He'll, he'll usually come back and give you another shot at it. So if it's not about fitting in, how do you find what God's will is for your life? Because he made you with a will. He made you out with a desire for you. And it's not just to have a four-bedroom colonial and a nice car. How do you figure out Here's the great news. You can discern, I want to share this with you now, you can discern the will of God for your life. Now, I want you to know, I have never audibly heard the will of God. I've never, God has never said, John, you should be a pastor. Right? I've never heard that. But you can discern, the Bible says that you can discern the will of God. Not only can you discern it, he wants to share it with you. This is the God who says, come close to me, call me daddy. Abba, father, that means call me dad. Dad wants to share with you why he created you and for what purpose. I'm going to give you a pretty famous Bible verse. A lot of you know. I'm going to give you the NIV version first because that's the one you know. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. See, I know you. 
you got it written over your fireplace, right? And you got a macrame pillow somewhere with that verse on it, right? I've seen those, and I read that verse a million times, and I always thought that verse meant, like, if I followed God, he would straighten me out. Because I'm a messed up guy, and if I could get my kids to follow God, he would straighten them out. But that's not what that verse means. There's a misunderstanding on my part. Here's what the verse means. It's better translated in the NLT version. Proverbs 3, 6. Seek his will. Okay, we're talking about the will of God. We'll tell you, I'll tell you how to do that. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Do you know the Bible tells you that you can discern what God wants you to do? You don't have to walk around in the darkness and have no idea. He will make your path obvious, what you're to do, what you're to become. Now, I know the will of God. If you're around, the, if you're around Christian circles long enough, it can, you can get a little confusing, right? Oh, I just, I just want the will of God. Lord, I, this morning, is it, is it ShopRite or Ampre? I just want to be in your will, Lord. Um, there's so much freedom in the will of God, okay? Like, God would go, yeah, like, I'm going to go to AMP or ShopRite with you. Go where you want, Okay. But let me just let me show you how the will of God works, if I can, just a little bit. There's another old Christian saying, I love this one. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. To which every first century Christian who was crucified and set aflame said, No, it's not. It's not safe. It's good. But it's not safe. One of the reasons we miss his will all the time is because we're always looking for the safe and comfortable thing. When the Bible talks about the will of God, it's always trying to say there's say it in three ways. There's essentially, theologians would say, there's essentially three ways which the will of God is discussed in the scripture. The first is the providential will of God. I'll explain these in one second. The second is the revealed will of God. Oftentimes that's called the moral will of God. And the last is the personal will of God, which is what so many of us are looking for. Oh, Lord, just show me your will. Well, here's the deal. The providential will of God When we talk about the providential will of God, those are the things that God is doing no matter what. You don't have to worry if you're going to pray for them. This is what he's up to and what he's always been up to. For example, if you went home and you looked at Galatians 4, you'd see that it was the will of God at just the right time, the will of God at just the appointed hour, to send Jesus into the world as Messiah. God was doing this. He was going to send Jesus as Messiah. Many of you know all these stories of the providential will of God, right? In Revelations, it says, the last book of the Bible, all of us one day will face a judgment. You don't have to pray, oh, Lord, I just want to be judged. The judgment is coming. Now, now for those of us that are in Christ, right, you know, the judgment for our sins has been paid for Jesus. But that day is coming. There's other things where we see the providential will of God, right? Uh, you see it in things like, well, we know Jesus is returning, We know that God had established Israel as the race through which he would rescue the world. And and we knew that he, the scripture said he was going to reestablish it again. These are things of the providential will of God. Now, God is doing those with, with or without your prayers or your hopes or your dreams. But here is something fascinating about the providential will of God. And here's where it can intersect what you're looking for. Because if you understand the providential will of God, the redemptive story that God has been after since the fall of man till he redeems at the end of our days... This whole story of God seeking after man, redeeming, calling, forgiving, grace. If you understand that, what you'll start to understand is the providential will of God is acted out through people. He uses people, men and women, oftentimes not like the best ones, to accomplish his will. He says to a young virgin girl of 13 or 14, Mary, I'm going to save the world. 
through a Messiah I'm going to send, and you're going to be his mother. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to, I am going to make a nation that will bless all of humanity. Now, I just need you to go. This is the providential will of God, and this is where it intersects with our own personal callings. The key to understanding God's will for your life is the more clear we get about what he's up to and what his plans are, the more we understand the bigger picture, the larger narrative that our lives are lived out in. Remember, this story is not about you. You're, you and I live lives in, a, in a, a bigger story. The easier it becomes for us when we understand this to understand where we fit in and what his will for our life is and what he might be asking us to do in it. Now, that's one thing. That's the providential will of God. There's this second thing, which is the, the moral will of God. These are the, the things that you know. Don't do this. Do this. These are things like the Ten Commandments, Right? These are things you should do and you shouldn't do. You don't need to pray about this. Lord, down on my luck, car payment due. I'm thinking about knocking off the bank. Lord, would you show me? Would you show me your will? You don't need to pray about that. Lord, I really like this guy. You know, we're getting along. And he keeps, he keeps kind of pushing me, you know, relationally, sexually to places I don't want to be, but I really don't want to lose this guy, and I think he's a good guy for me, Lord. So, Lord, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about maybe, maybe, you know, you don't need to pray about that. God has, God has given us his, his, his moral law. He's given us commands so that these things are, should, should, as you learn them, you don't need to seek God's will about these things. You don't need to pray on them. Thessalonians, a book in the New Testament, says this. It says, it's God's will, okay, we're talking about God's will, that you be sanctified. Now, that's a religious word. What does that mean? Two things. The first thing it means is that you be set apart, that you not be like everybody else. It's God's will, church, hear me on this, that you not be like everybody else. Sanctified has, has, carries with it an understanding of you should be set apart for God's work. And it also has, carries with it the weight of uh, the word holiness. You should be set aside for God's work and holy. In fact, that verse, on, that verse goes on, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, to say, to talk about sexual immorality. You, there are so many things that you don't need to pray about what God's will is. He's already laid it out. I had, I had somebody come to me one time and they said, uh, John, I have fallen in love with another man. I'm married and I have some kids, but I've fallen in love with another man. I know it's a crazy story. We met each other on a mission trip, and I know this is of God, and I know he wants me to get married to him. I, this is what God has for me. And I said, no, he doesn't. That is not the will of God. I don't know that because I, I'm here. John, tell her it's not the will of God. I know it because I, I, I understand the scriptures a little bit, and it's fairly clear that, that a, a marriage was supposed to be this, this redemptive picture of Christ and his church. And so what you're telling me is that God essentially would be looking at me going, John, I used to love you, but I found somebody better, so I'm leaving you, and I'm going to go love him. God doesn't do that to me, and he's not doing it to your husband. And so that's the moral will of God, right? Right? Now, here's the deal. God has a personal will for all of us, too. 
the specific sense of what we should be doing in our lives, where we should be going. Now, here's the key. Here's the key. You want to understand what should I be doing? Where should I go? How should I live? The more familiar you become with the providential will of God, what he's doing in the world, and the more obedient you become to the moral will of God, the things that he says you should do and you shouldn't do, the easier it will be for you to discover the personal will for God in your life. Andy Stanley has a great visual on this. I'll put a picture up here. Um, you guys know what a plumb bob is? Right? So builders for all of time have been using these plumb bobs to hang down and, and, and get a straight line and determine how everything else is going to get built around it. A mason, he would use a plumb bob. Now they actually use um, lasers. But he would use a horizontal plumb line and he would lay bricks that way. This is how God's will works in your life for those of you that have been created as individuals with different gifts and passions trying to figure out what your purpose is. God's providential will is, and his moral will will determine the plumb line for everything else that he's calling you to do. Those two things, those two boundaries, as you come to know them, as you come to be obedient to them, they set the course and the pattern for his call on your life. The more familiar you are, this is why I don't want to be like, you got to study your Bibles, but can I tell you, you got to study your Bibles. Because the more you understand what God is up to, See, if you don't understand the providential will of God, let me give you a gross exaggeration of what happens. If you don't understand the providential will of God, you might be a very charismatic leader in 1930s Germany that says, I believe God is calling me to create one super race because you didn't understand the providential will of God. The more you understand the providential will of God, the more you surrender to the moral will of God, the easier it will be for you to determine the personal will that God has for you. I had a young girl, I've told you the story before, she came up to me about a year ago and she said, I'm in a relationship that is not a godly relationship, I think he wants me to get out of it, and I'm in a job that I know he doesn't want me to be doing. What should I be doing? What should I do? I said, Does he really, did, you, did you feel, are you sure about this? She said, yeah, I really believe God says, is telling me to, to get out of it. I said, you should get out of it. And I met with her the other day to figure out how to hire her because after a year, I've never seen somebody, her life has taken off. She found the will of God in her life. A couple, uh, I've had some other couples come to me recently, and they've said, look, our relationship has not been a godly relationship. We've been hanging around this church. This is, this is crazy stuff, okay? This is God's stuff. Like, they, they make an appointment. John, can we come talk to you? Yeah, come on in. Hey, I just want to let you know, um, uh, we've been in this relationship together, and it hasn't been a godly relationship, so we just want to tell you we're not having sex anymore. I love that. It's like, you're going to take God seriously, even when the whole culture tells you one thing? Everybody tells you this is okay. You're going to realign your life between God's providential will and God's moral will. And you're, now you're going to find his personal will for your life. There's lots more situations I could tell you about my, Char my buddy Charlie Albertel. Even, even he wanted to be a pastor. He wanted to be a pastor so much and he tried and he tried and he tried. And every time he tried to be a pastor of a church, it just wouldn't work out, it just wouldn't work out, it just wouldn't work out. Charlie is now, and he went through tremendous pain trying to do this. Charlie's now a chaplain in a, uh, a prison. And he, he, this is what God, it took him a while to find it, but this is what God has called him to. He's, he's, he sends me emails. I can't believe how blessed I am. I'm meeting with a girl this week. I don't want to jump on her story, but she's a girl that's part of our church. And she went to Guatemala, and she said, Guatemala changed my life. I need to come talk to you about something. I said, well, what do you want to talk about? She said, I just have to share this story with you, my story. I said, what is it? She said, I love to dance. Now remember, everybody's going to get paid for what they love to do, okay? Everybody's not going to get paid for their gifts and their passions. 
She says, I love to dance. And I said, okay. And she says, so here's what I did. I've joined this ministry, and I go to prisons all over America, and I dance. And I dance for God. And I dance to his glory. And I said, that's the most awesome thing I ever heard. Ben, come on up. Guys, if you will couple the understanding of God's providential will, what he's about, how he might be calling you into it, if you will obey his moral will, you'll be able to look. Here's the last piece. Here's the last piece. His providential will, his moral will. Then you look at the way he's created you. What are you passionate about? What ticks you off that needs to be fixed? What did he give you as a skill? Not everybody is an upfront person. Not everybody is a leader. Some people, like I've said to you many times, if you're dying, call Joan. She's going to be much better for you than I am. I'll be like trying to make jokes about the Mets, right? Everybody has been given a certain gift, but when you live your life between the providential will of God and the moral will of God, and you begin then to look at what your gifts are, what your passions are, and you begin to use them, don't worry about getting applause. Don't worry about making money. Worry about finding out who you are and what you were created to be. Let's stand and close together in song.